Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week we'll be talking with Dr. Stephen Cook, the Ini Enrico Mate Senior Fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Steve and I are going to talk about U.S. policy toward the Middle East, including Iran, Turkey, and Iraq, the impact of the U.S. presidential elections on the region, and lots more. I think you will find Steve's firsthand observations and analysis of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan especially interesting, as I did. My conversation with Steve Cook begins after this short break and a few brief opening remarks about the latest IMF projections on the impact of COVID-19 on the global economy and the Middle East. I think those who think that we can save the relationship see Turkey as a critical ally against Iran and Russia, when I think the Turks really would prefer to keep their options open. Turkey, Iran, and Russia share something in common. And that is all three countries don't believe that a US-led order is beneficial to them. Uh, and thus they have worked to undermine uh, that order. Of course, the Turks have said, oh, sure, we'll be partners with you if you accept our views of all conflicts in the region and pursue your interests as if they are our interests. That's not going to happen. We have our own uh, interests and own views and, and, and different goals. But in general, again, at that level of abstraction, the Turks, the Iranians, and the Russians don't believe that an American-led order in the region, broadly speaking, uh, enhances their power or advances their interests. That was Steve Cook of the Council on Foreign Relations, who will be joining us shortly. But first, let me tell you about what's on my mind after looking at the latest IMF World Economic Update, which came out this month. There is finally and sort of some somewhat positive news on the global economic front this year. The negative impact of the COVID-19 pandemic may be slightly less horrible than what was expected in June, according to this latest report of the International Monetary Fund. And that's in large measure due to what one IMF official referred to as a significant upgrade for the U.S. economy. Global economic growth is expected to decline by 4.4% this year, the IMF says. This is an improvement, however, over the IMF's last projection in June of a 4.9% decline. Part of the reason for this slight uptick are signs of an economic turnaround in the U.S. U.S. GDP is still expected to contract by 4.3% this year. Yes, that's dismal. But in June, the estimate was minus 8%. IMF officials say the U.S. recovery has come about sooner, and the indicators have been stronger as the U.S. economy has begun to open up. Now, the Middle East and North Africa region, however, doesn't have it so good. Indeed, the IMF warns that the region's economic performance is likely to be worse off than originally anticipated, lagging even further behind these already negative forecasts. The region's economic growth forecasts for 2020 have fallen from minus 3.3%, that was in April of this year, 
to minus 5% in this latest report. And the projection for growth next year dropped over the same period from 4.8% to 3.2%. Last year, the MENA region had just a 0.8% growth rate. Now, the reason for this projected lower growth rate in the Middle East is because of deep structural problems that have gone from bad to worse as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. Among them are the wars in Syria, Libya, and Yemen, civil unrest in Iraq, Lebanon, and Algeria, low oil prices, and economic crises that predate the pandemic, including heavy indebtedness, high unemployment among young people, and legacies of corruption, inefficiencies, and poor governance. Low oil prices are not expected to recover to 2019 levels. The price per barrel is projected to end up at $41 this year, and according to the IMF, $46 in 2021. That's a drop of almost 25% from $61 per barrel last year in 2019. You can read more of my analysis of the IMF report and the latest El Monitor Week in Review. Now to our conversation with my friend and colleague, Dr. Stephen Cook, the Eni Enrico Matei Senior Fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Steve is an expert on Arab and Turkish politics, as well as U.S. Middle East policy, and he is the author of False Dawn, Protest, Democracy, and Violence in the New Middle East, The Struggle for Egypt from Nasser to Tahrir Square, which won the 2012 gold medal from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, and Ruling But Not Governing, The Military and Political Development in Egypt, Algeria, and Turkey. My conversation with Steve Cook begins now. Steve, welcome to On the Middle East. It's a great pleasure to be with you, Andrew. Great to have you. Let's start with your piece in Foreign Affairs this month, which I commend to our listeners. It's called No Exit, Why the Middle East Still Matters to America. And it's a response to both what I would call the endless war crowd, which prefers we pack up and leave the region, and the regime changers and the kind of extreme liberal interventionists who want to remake the region in America's image. Now, Steve, you, you discuss changes in U.S. approaches to energy and energy security, I should say, in Israel as two reasons motivating a rethink in U.S. policy toward the region. You also talk about the experience of U.S. intervention in Iraq, which became one of those endless wars that are always brought up. Now, explain to us those and other points. What do you think Americans want in the Middle East, if they're even thinking much about the Middle East, and why you think the U.S. may be ready for the realism you make the case for in the article? Yeah, it's, um, look, it's a, it, 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 this is an article that is really, as you point out, a response to everybody <laughs> who has been uh, writing and thinking about the Middle East. And I think that the state of the debate is really kind of a mess. Um, although I think the consensus really falls on the side of people who um, prefer uh, to, for lack of a better term, to leave the region. Um, you have the retrenchers and the reducers and the withdrawers. And I think this is a function of the fact that after so long in the Middle East and 
inconclusive wars and frustration and quite frankly failures, people really don't know or, or have lost sight of, I should say, um, what's really important to the United States. And I think that actually that in the longer term, what's important to the United States is up for debate. But at this moment, it strikes me that the idea that we should leave uh, or that we should, as Stephen Walt suggests, be an offshore balancer contains far more risk for the United States uh, and people in the region than is otherwise, otherwise presented. So my, my argument basically is, uh, you know, the kind of extreme liberal internationalism that you mentioned, we're going to remake the region, we're going to promote democracy, we're going to make the world safe for democracy by helping the Middle East become democratic. That has been largely discredited because we weren't able to do that. And any progress in that direction in the region that has happened has not happened as a result of American policy. Iraq, as you point out, uh, is the kind of for the withdrawers, for the, for, the, for the ending forever wars crowd, that's the original sin. And Iraq is, quite frankly, a mess. Um, so that discredits the regime changers, the ones who want to do something similar in, uh, in Iran. And in between are folks who are thinking about these ideas, but really feel that, you know, the, 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 it's not worth it any longer. We don't have the tools. The region isn't ripe for doing the kinds of things that we want to do. And after all, our interests really uh, are not as important as they once were. My view is this, um, we should not leave the region. We do have interests in the region, but we have to set our sights on what's realizable and what's realistic. And what's realizable and realistic is essentially ensuring the sea lanes, containing the Iranians, uh, continuing to help the Iraqis uh, keep uh, extremists at bay and to, uh, to uh, contain the Iranians in, in Iraq as well, uh, and not to withdraw precipitously in a way that would create chaos in the region. Um, and I think that that's a real danger of withdrawing, is that regional actors would take matters into their own hands. And uh, without the United States being there, uh, create chaos. So we've seen, we've seen that in places like Yemen, we've seen that in places like Syria, where the United States has specifically said, we are not going to get involved uh, in these conflicts and left it to regional actors and no good has come from it. So overall, my sense is that we should align our resources, our presence towards a number of things that contribute, however modestly, to a more stable region. Perhaps the world will turn in the future and there will be a greater role for the United States to play in those kinds of things that uh, have seized American analysts and policymakers over the course of the last 20 years, like promoting change and a two-state solution. But it, it strikes me now is not the time. You did mention Israel, and I'm getting a little long-winded here, but my only point on Israel is that, you know, Israel is, a success, is actually an American success story in the region. Um, at one of our core interests for the last 60 plus years has been to help ensure Israeli security. Israeli security and sovereignty is now beyond a doubt. Uh, Israel is a successful developed country with a per capita GDP that is on par with our closest partners in Europe. 
Um, there's nothing written anywhere that suggests that we have to continue to provide Israel with copious amounts of military aid. Uh, while, and we could still be partners with, uh, with Israel in the region. We just don't have the kind of, have to have the kind of relationship that we've had with Israel where um, we are continually forever providing resources for the Israelis when they are in, a, I think, a very good strategic position on their own. Steve, what's interesting about what, what you're arguing here is that both Presidents Obama and Trump came to office articulating an idea about stepping back from commitments in the region, but they get pulled back in. How do you see that tension? Be, or, or is this tension just part of U.S. foreign policy, which is that traditional argument between those who want to defend the homeland and those who want to go out and spread democracy. Is there any way to really resolve this? Because we've had two presidents who have tried to step back. And, and, and we're, without a doubt, it's politically appealing, especially after the last 20 years of, as I said, inconclusive wars uh, and a lot of American frustration and a lot of people's lives have been changed as a result of these 20 years. Uh, in the Middle East. I think that that theme, though, that you're articulating is something that we are going to be living with in the Middle East for some time. Um, and we've been living with it as a, you know, kind of central debate in American foreign policy for a very, very long, a very, very long time. What this foreign affairs article does is try to say, let's think not about these polar opposites of, you know, withdrawing from the region or being in the region in a way that we are going to remake it and with, with whichever way we, whichever way we choose to do so, but to align our resources and our strategy with our capability and our resources. And I think that our capabilities and our resources um, align quite well with a series of more modest goals in the region uh, with some, with some changes uh, in there that, you know, thing, you know, the, as I said, the military to Israel seems to be an anachronism, something of the past. Um, but containing Iran, uh, ensuring the, the, the sea lanes, uh, fighting terrorists, countering proliferation, those are things that are worth an investment on the part of the United States. And I think those are things that Americans themselves understand it's worth, uh, it's worth the investment. I think the problem for American foreign policy in the Middle East is that goes back to Washington and neither policymakers nor analysts like ourselves have been able to articulate precisely what it is we're doing there. And I think the kind of stripped down, realizable and realistic approach that I lay out in foreign affairs is something that you can explain to Americans and they understand. Plus, it doesn't put the country in, in, in such a precarious position where we're, where there's a sense that we are stuck. We're stuck fighting wars in faraway lands. We're stuck in the muck of politics of the region. No, we have four things we would like to do in the Middle East. And here's where, how we're going to go about doing it. I, I think that's a much better way to approach it uh, as opposed to saying, let's end forever wars or let's remake Iran in the image of I don't know some uh, some some uh, something that we've imagined around coffee in a conference room in Washington D.C. Steve, 
does this approach you're talking about mean that the U.S. should make fewer criticisms on human rights among our key partners in the region, increase the criticism, or about the same? Because there's still that tension between yeah. strategic relationships with countries like Saudi Arabia and Egypt and human rights and those countries which are a concern for many people. Yeah, you know, I think, look, I, this is the hardest part uh, of this. And, and this is, again, a, a consistent debate in American foreign policy. Uh, values versus our, you know, strategic concerns or security interests. And my view is, at the risk of sounding like, you know, I kill puppies or something, that we, you know, look, I think that rhetorically we can be uh, still... Um, raise concerns publicly with our regional allies about their human rights records. I, I would never have wanted the president of the United States to be counseling uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman about a better way to conceal the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. I would have preferred a president of the United States to stand up and say publicly that this was a, a crime, a gruesome, grisly crime, uh, and that uh, this was not consistent with our alliance. At the same time, I don't think that we do ourselves much good in the region from a geostrategic position if we um, target allies like Saudi Arabia, like Egypt, like the UAE for democracy promotion, let's say. It only produces resistance. If someone could tell me how promoting democracy improves our position in the region rather than producing resistance and providing opportunity for regional opponents and global opponents to take advantage of the problems in the relationships that democracy promotion or whatever you want to call it produces in our bilateral ties with important countries in the region. Um, somebody, I, I, I'd like to hear that, but what it seems to me is that we can do both, uh, although a little bit less of what you're saying, admittedly. Um, rhetorically, we can continue to talk to these countries about human rights, um, but we need to, we, we still are going to need to work with them in the region. And I think the kind of full-blown, full-bore democracy promotion type uh, of policy only uh, engenders resistance ill will and opportunity for for our opponents. Look, I, I, it, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to say those things, given the state of duress under which people live in some of these places, particularly a place like Egypt. But I think that it should be clear by now that we don't have the tools or resources to resolve the political problems in a place like Egypt. I don't think anybody really expects us to, but I don't know where we would start and how we would make it better. We would make ourselves feel better, but I'm not sure that it would put the country in a better place uh, to achieve its goals in the Middle East by, embar by embarking on uh, another round of trying to promote democracy in the region. Let me just add, before you ask the next question, mm -hmm. is that these countries have become better at resisting those things. Um, I, they, um, they have built up their capabilities to surveil their societies in ways that um, whatever 
material support we would offer to people who are wanting to fundamental change in their, uh, in their countries, it just pales in comparison. But my view is if you look at what happened in Iraq last fall, what happened in Lebanon last fall and during this past summer, that when change happens in the region, it's going to be at the hands of people who live in the region. Uh, I don't think there's been, as I said before, I don't think there's been any step towards more just open uh, societies in the region that are the result of directly the result of American efforts. Steve, we're in the home stretch of an election here in the United States that is spending little time on U.S. foreign policy, let alone the Middle East. But let's get into a couple of issues that have come up. One is Iran. The other is the U.S. Uh, brokering the normalization deal with uh, Israel and the UAE and Bahrain. And let's start with Iran. Now, there was a back and forth about Iran in the vice presidential debate. Senator Harris said that the U.S. stepping back from the Iran deal made us less safe and undercut our allies. Vice President Pence conveyed the Trump administration's line that withdrawing from the JCPOA was the right move because the deal was flawed and maximum pressure is working. Iran, according to the IMF, is now facing its third straight year of negative economic growth. You argue for containment of Iran. Tell us what you mean and how you see Iran policy playing out with a second Trump administration or a first Biden administration? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, thanks. Um, and what I was trying to do in, in foreign affairs was point out that neither regime change slash maximum pressure nor re-entering the JCPOA or a JCPOA 2.0 are going to do what the proponents of either policy think they're gonna do. In fact, what both of those things do actually is radicalize the region. So maximum pressure regime change encourages the Iranians to go out and do bad things around the region to keep the United States and its allies off balance. Uh, the Iranians are never going to have a direct confrontation with the United States, but they are going to try to cause as much chaos and trouble and bloodshed in and around the region targeting the U.S. and its allies. It just serves to kind of radicalize uh, the Iranians and Iranian uh, uh, the Iranian approach to the region by saying we are going to continually apply maximum pressure. And the answer, interestingly, from the Trump administration, anytime there, is, there isn't success or the Iranians do something, they say, oh, well, the answer to that is maximum pressure, more maximum pressure. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the Iranians have demonstrated that for all of the trouble that this has caused for their economy, they still have the ability to do a lot to make a lot of trouble around the region. Then it strikes me that re-entering the JCPOA or JCPOA 2.0 radicalizes the region in another way, in that nothing has really changed between when the original agreement was made in 2015 and now. So that means you'll have the Emiratis, the Saudis, the Israelis, and others pulling out all the stops in the region as well as here in Washington to try to scuttle the agreement. One way in which the Obama administration had tried to ensure to its allies in the region that it would, that it was, it quote unquote, had their backs was to provide 
large amounts of defense equipment to the Saudis, Emiratis, and others. So, so. Well, a lot of that equipment is now being used in Yemen. So it, it strikes me because the Saudis were so concerned that the Iranian, that the United States was leaving the region and leaving them to face Iranian hegemony. Uh, and that the JCPOA was allowing the, the Iranians out of the box. So in two different ways, these two strategies, the two things that have really seized Washington's debate, maximum pressure slash regime change or re-entering the uh, JCPOA seems to me cause significant trouble in the region and don't get us where we want to be in either case. And that a, a more realistic goal for the United States is to contain the Iranians and hope for a day when the Iranian regime changes. Maybe that'll happen soon. Maybe it won't. It doesn't mean lifting sanctions. It doesn't mean ruling out military action. It doesn't mean uh, not having a dialogue with the Iranians. But it, what it does do is, one, it takes regime change off the table. So it kind of limits American ambition in the region. And two, what it does is it does not put the fear of God in the minds of leaders on the other side of the Gulf, that they are going to be left to what they perceive to be as uh, an irreparably uh, malevolent power on the other side of the Gulf. Steve, how do you sort out the normalization agreements between Israel and the UAE and Bahrain and what do you think they mean in terms of an Israeli-Palestinian peace process, again, under a Biden administration or a second Trump administration? Yeah, you know, I think the two-state solution is that, you know, unicorn of, of U.S. Middle East policy. Um, I, I think that the two-state solution has been dead for a long time. Um, and so it, it strikes me that there will be uh, there's the potential for another try for one uh, should uh, former Vice President Biden be elected. Um, less so with during the, uh, a, a second Trump administration. But um, I do think that the Abraham Accords provided an opportunity, however slim, for the Palestinians to turn it around on the Emiratis and say, okay, you claim that you've done us a great favor by taking annexation off the table. We have our doubts, but we're now going to use your relationship with the Israelis and the Saudi relationship with the Israelis and try to open a dialogue to really false forestall uh, annexation. Palestinians are too divided internally to actually do that. And I think we're encouraged by their international supporters not to do that. Um, I don't think that that would have resulted in a two-state solution. Um, I just don't think there is a two-state solution. Um, uh, I think that what you have is basically Palestinians living in a one-state reality, as my dissertation supervisor, Ian Lustig, has written. The, the one state reality. There's a new paradigm here. How that works out, whether it works into, out into a binational state, I have tremendous, I'm tremendously skeptical of that. Um, I do think what you see there though is 
basically what you're going to get in the future, which is the kind of creeping annexation, stalemate and creeping annexation, despite the Abraham Accords, uh, in which the Israelis control uh, this territory. And the Palestinians have, at, you know, the most limited kind of, uh, most limited kind of self-rule. Uh, in fact, a charade of, of, of self-rule. Um, the normalization between Israel and the UAE and Israel and the Bahrainis was made really not out of any kind of great concern for the Palestinians, but out of the national interests of those countries. And the leaders believed that that would advance their interests. Certainly what's coming from some countries in the Gulf is that they're no longer willing to put Palestinian interests ahead of their own interests. And thus uh, they see a tremendous benefit of uh, normalizing ties with the Israelis. Steve, you've written a lot about Turkey. U.S.-Turkey relations are in a bad way, including differences uh, over how Ankara and Washington view the Syrian Kurds, as well as Turkey's purchase of the Russian S-400 missile defense system. There are other issues as well. Those, I think, are at the top of the agenda. One thread that seems to be holding what remains of the relationship together is the connection between Presidents Trump and Erdogan. How do you see U.S.-Turkey relations evolving, and how can the differences between these two important countries, NATO allies, be narrowed? Let me just say that um, having met Erdogan, um, he is, he is a, quite a charismatic character. Um, he's incredibly shrewd politically and quite charismatic. I've seen him in a number of settings. I've seen him in huge settings, hundreds of thousands of people. I've seen him in smaller settings of 100 or 200 people, and I've also been around the table with him with about a dozen people or so. And in each setting, he is extraordinarily charismatic. He knows how to connect with the people around him, even if they don't share a language. Um, it's, he's quite, quite talented and quite a fascinating character, and, and clearly the most consequential Turkish leader since Ataturk. And of course, he wants to, he wants to eclipse uh, Mustafa Kemal, known as Ataturk. Um, it's, and, and, and it is his relationship with President Trump um, that has really kind of held, is, is the thread uh, that is holding the U.S.-Turkey relationship together. Um, you mentioned the Turkish purchase of the Russian S-400 air defense system. Um, Turkey should have been sanctioned 18 months ago by the President of the United States for purchasing that system. Uh, and the president has held off on doing so. Um, Turkey has uh, complicated or did complicate and undermine aspects of the fight against the Islamic State in Syria. Um, Turkey has uh, been quite aggressive in the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, tensions are flaring between Turkey and Greece, two NATO allies. Turkey and Egypt have been at loggerheads. Uh, the UAE and Israel People talk about the Abraham Accords as kind of strengthening an alliance against Iran, but it was also about Turkey. Both those countries perceive a sense of, of threat from, from Turkey. Um, it strikes me though, that in the long list of complaints between Turkey and the United States, there is for the United States, the, there's two issues, the S-400 issue. And for members of Congress, it's, it's obviously the S-400 and interestingly, the uh, moment in May 2017 when Erdogan's security guards beat up 
peaceful protesters on Sheridan Circle outside the uh, outside the uh, the Turkish ambassador's zone. That seems to have gotten a lot of people on Capitol Hill quite riled up about about Turkey. And for the Turks, I, I think the original sin on the part of the United States is to work with this Syrian Kurdish fighting force uh, called the People's Protection Units, uh, which are directly linked to the PKK, which has been waging a war against Turkey since 1984. And so. These are things that, despite the relationship between President Trump and President Erdogan, will, whether Trump wins or whether there's a Biden administration, will continue to be significant problems in the relationship. My view, and, and what I've, I've written on this, is that these problems really reflect changes in both Turkey and the United States, in their domestic politics, in their regional interests, in their goals. And that the first thing we need to recognize is that there isn't, there's, there's no saving this relationship. That there's recognizing that Turkey sees things differently, has different goals, has different policies. Some of them conflict with the United States, some of them don't. And to proceed from that understanding, uh, that there are going to be places where we're going to have to work against the Turks. There are going to have to be places where we're going to have to get out of each other's way. And then there are going to be places where it won't be important to us to do either of those things. Uh, and then there'll be places where we can, we can actually uh, cooperate. But right now, uh, the Turks are making it very, very hard for us to do that, given uh, their aggressive position in the Eastern Mediterranean uh, and the, uh, what they've been doing S 400, I, you know, I think those who think that we can save the relationship, see Turkey as a critical ally against Iran and Russia, when I think the Turks really would prefer to keep their options open with regard to Iran and Russia, because they're useful to advancing Turkey's interests. And one of the things I think we need to keep in mind is that, and in, in the background, as we're thinking about the future of us Turkey relations is that. You know, there's been a lot of loose talk. Oh, Erdogan's like Putin and they have a bromance and, you know, oh, or on the other hand, Turkey is becoming like Iran, a theocracy. And so on. whether those things are true or not, at a level of abstraction, Turkey, Iran and Russia share something in common. And that is all three countries don't believe that a U.S. led order is beneficial to them. Uh, and thus they have worked to undermine uh, that order. Of course, the Turks have said, oh, sure, we'll be partners with you if you accept our views of all conflicts in the region and pursue your interests as if they are our interests. That's not going to happen. We have our own uh, interests and own views and, and, and different goals. But in general, again, at that level of abstraction, the Turks, the Iranians, and the Russians don't believe that an American-led order in the region broadly speaking, uh, enhances their power or advances their interests. Steve, we're just about out of time. I'd like to ask you about U.S. policy toward Iraq. And your, I really liked your foreign policy article about this this week. It was a fantastic hook that while you support increased engagement with Iraq under Prime Minister Qadabi, that the U.S. should really downsize the embassy there, not downsize the U.S. diplomatic commitment or the commitment to working with Iraq to, to help it with its security and economic needs, really just 
downsizing the really large embassy and maybe donate some of that space to an Iraqi academic institution. Tell us about how you see Iraq. Yeah, I, the embassy issue, it came up because uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had threatened to close the embassy. And I said, go ahead, close the embassy. You know, people got all upset. Oh, he's going to close the embassy. This is terrible for U.S.-Iraqi relations and whatever. And my view is close the embassy. Uh, close the embassy. It is a symbol of American hubris. Uh, it is a symbol of a misbegotten adventure in Iraq. We should give it to University of Baghdad. It would make a nice campus, classrooms, whatever, dormitories. Uh, but And we should move into something more modest and move into something more modest that's aligned with what our more modest goals should be in Iraq. And I think that the Iraqi political system is so rotten and so perverse. I, I'm not really sure what it is that the United States can do to help the Iraqis change it. I think that those protesters who were in the streets of Iraq last fall, and they've been popping up again, have it right, that they really do need to overthrow the regime. And I, I'm not saying that Prime Minister Khadami is, is a bad guy. He's actually a good guy. What I'm saying is that the political institutions of the state are so perverse that they sort of channel the corruption and graft and, uh, and, and, and kind of criminal activity that has brought Iraq to this place and that there are vested interests in maintaining that system, the political elite and the Iranians. I'm not sure what it is that the United States can do to fix that. I don't think we have it within our power or the resources available to do that. But what we can do is we can continue to help the Iraqis with security. And this is what's worrying, going back to the earlier part of our conversation about the ending forever worse thing in which Iraq is the original sin. Because I think that first we owe the Iraqis something. Two, there is still an extremist threat. Three, part of my kind of broad idea of containing the Iranians is helping the Iraqis protect their own sovereignty. And what I mean by that is chiefly about the Iranians who have vassalized uh, Iraq. Um, and you know, if we stay in Iraq and support the security mission there longer, a little bit longer, that's the best guarantee of getting out of Iraq. If we leave, the chances are we'll have to go back again. Um, but you're right, the embassy, the Secretary of State's threat to leave the embassy was a good hook uh, to, to get into some of these issues. And um, it also gave me an opportunity to discover what our old embassy that was designed in the 50s looked like. And it was a terrific uh, mid-century uh, building for someone who at one time in my life wanted to be an architect but discovered I couldn't draw or do math. Um, it's still fun to look at cool looking buildings. Um, I don't know if we could get a new cool looking building in, in Baghdad, but we certainly don't need the $750 million uh, monstrosity with 600 uh, single bedroom apartments. Uh, I can't remember what, how many you know, office buildings there are. There's, there's actually, there's ball fields. And so it'd be a great addition to uh, a, a, a university in, in Iraq. Steve, as always, really enjoyed talking with you today about the region. And thank you for joining us on, on the Middle East. Thanks, Andrew. I hope to see you soon. We'll be right back after this short break with a few brief closing remarks and takeaways from our conversation with Steve Cook. 
I'm Ben Kaspit, I'll monitor veteran columnists reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I'm glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here. On Israel, Al Monitor. A lot to take in from our conversation just now with Steve Cook. Let me mention two things. First, Steve's observations about Erdogan and Turkey seem to me unusually insightful, especially his comment that whatever differences may exist among Russia, Turkey, and Iran, as in Syria, for example, or with Russia and Turkey in Libya or the Caucasus, what holds them together, and them being Russia, Turkey, and Iran, is undercutting or challenging U.S. influence in the region. This analysis is really sobering about the direction of U.S.-Turkey relations, but absolutely essential in understanding how to chart a path forward. Now, second, Steve also talked about the need for a pivot to containment on Iran and the challenges the next administration, whether it be Donald Trump or Joe Biden, will have in reshaping a regional consensus around U.S.-Iran policy. And let me here just put three ideas into the mix about the prospects for renewed negotiations with Iran. First, and repeating what Ambassador Ryan Crocker said last week on this show, the first diplomatic stops are the former members of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or the Iran nuclear deal. And in my score, not just the European members, United Kingdom, France, and Germany, but also Russia and China. The latter two will have their reasons for thwarting a new consensus with Iran or seeking really difficult concessions to get them on board. Not easy, but no deal without them, especially if the U.S., whether it be Trump or Biden, is seeking to revise aspects of the deal, which Iran has opposed. Second, there needs to be a regional track this time around. In the Week in Review, I've written about the need for confidence-building measures and technical discussions on the peaceful and safe uses of civil nuclear energy. If there is to be a second deal with Iran, the bet here is that it will not involve a workaround of the regional parties as happened last time. And third, again, if there is a new deal with Iran, the U.S. might consider seeking passage of the Iran deal as a treaty, getting Senate buy-in, which would make it more difficult for subsequent administrations to terminate the deal via executive order, as President Trump did. Thank you all for listening to On the Middle East. We will be back next week. And in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcast on Israel. 
at your favorite podcast platform. 